Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello and welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined not only by Brian Joyner of BP Boston and Over the Monster, uh, but we have a special guest for our last episode of the regular season. We have Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Uh, you can also find him on The Ringer MLB podcast, which is absolutely fantastic, and the Effectively Wild podcast for Fangraphs. His Twitter handle is at Ben Lindbergh, so definitely give him a follow there. Uh, ben, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Always nice to make a comeback at BP in some form or another. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly exciting to have such a uh, notable alum back with our podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so let's jump right into it. Um, you have had pretty much the coolest um, string of uh, baseball jobs uh, that, <laughs> that anyone can have, um, in my opinion. Uh, you've you've written for some really interesting publications and and done some cool things, and you've even run a team. Um, so. Could you kind of tell us how all of that evolved, how you got into baseball, and um, sort of how your journey led you to the ringer, where you are now? Sure. Yeah, I have been very fortunate with how things have worked out. Originally, I wanted to work in baseball, as in work for a baseball team, work in a baseball operations department. So initially, I was doing what I could to make that happen. So I would just get any internship I could, any unpaid position. I was lucky enough to be in a a position where I could do that for a while. And so once you get that first baseball entry on your resume, it gets easier to get the next one. So 
I worked for the Elias Sports Bureau briefly while I was still in school. I worked for the Nationals in an internship briefly. I also worked for the Yankees. This was all during high school, college. And with the Yankees, I worked in the publications department initially and ultimately made my way over to the baseball operations department, which I thought was where I wanted to be. But by that time, I had already started working for Baseball Prospectus, just sort of in a unpaid research assistant position initially and then as an intern. And I was able to write several articles while I was still in school before I graduated. And I loved that. It was great. I had a lot of fun doing it. The feedback from the readers was great. I, I really just enjoyed that public facing part of the job. But then immediately after I graduated, I went to work for the Yankees for a year or so and was kind of cut off. I wasn't able to write or talk or do anything that wasn't super secretive while I was with the team. And ultimately my internship ended. And I know a lot of people who just go from one team internship to another, and they're just determined to get a job with the team. And eventually, hopefully they do catch on in a full-time position with one. And I just kind of got it out of my system. I felt like I got a nice little peek behind the curtain. I learned some things. I met some people. We happened to win the World Series that year, not through my doing, but <laughs> I happened to be there at the right time, right place, and rode in the ticker tape parade and was in the clubhouse after they won the World Series and everything and just sort of got a, a taste of what that's like. And I just felt by that point that my skill set was better suited to a, a public role. I really like writing. It's what I studied in school. It's what I was best at in school. And having gotten a taste of it at BP, I wanted to get back to that. So after that Yankees internship, I went to work for Bloomberg Sports for a while. And at the same time, I was working for Baseball Prospectus, eventually ended up running BP, which was great. I really loved recruiting writers and editing writers, working with writers and also doing my own writing. And eventually that led to a gig at Grantland because someone had seen my stuff at BP and had liked it. So I ended up at Grantland, which is, you know, the legendary site where all these incredible talented people were. And you just felt out of your depth just looking at the names and the bylines every day. And that was great. Of course, that came to an end, sadly. Spent some time at 538 until my contract at ESPN was up. And then I moved over to The Ringer, which was a natural place for me to go because, of course, it's a Bill Simmons site. My former editor, Mallory Rubin, is an editor at The Ringer. Lots of the people running the site and working for the site are former Grantland people, although not entirely. We have a, a ton of really talented new people who are not at Grantland. So the site just sort of has the same ethos. So I've been really lucky wherever I've written has been a place where I could kind of pursue my interests and passions, whether they were baseball or non-baseball. And I've had a lot of really great editors who just kind of gave me a lot of leash and let me run with various ideas that at other places probably would have been shot down. So from listening to that list of, of stuff, I, I guess two questions come to mind. And the, the first of which is when you were interning with the Yankees and you had this sort of really unique experience of being a part of the team when they were able to win the World Series. And I'm sure that uh, from that experience, you saw a number of things that you maybe wouldn't have seen had you been with a different club. Did that sort of, um, you know, scratch that itch that you had to be involved with Major League Baseball a little bit more than if, you know, it had been a different experience, if you had been with the Padres instead during that time period? Or, or do you think that you just really missed that voice uh, that you had when you were writing at BP 
Um, and that was the main reason why you switched over. Do you think that it would have been different had you not had that success that you had with the Yankees? I think it was mostly the latter. It was that I missed that interaction and that public role. And also, I just felt like I stood out more in that area because all of my training, all of my skills, such as they were, were writing and editing and later, I guess, speaking, although that certainly wasn't part of my training. But with a baseball team, it's hard to stand out that way because obviously there's not a, a whole lot of need for writers. I mean, it's helpful to be able to write well, no matter what industry you're in. But people were looking for, you know, workers with great math skills and computer science and programming skills. Like I might be a, a stat head compared to the typical fan or even the typical writer, but not compared to the typical person who's working in a major league front office. There were brilliant people with degrees I could never dream of obtaining. And so I couldn't keep up with those people when it came to the quantitative stuff. And then I hadn't played at a high level. I didn't have scouting experience or anything that really distinguished me there. So I was maybe just kind of a generally capable person who was able to think about things in an interesting way, but that's not really enough to, to stand out in, in some cases. And so I felt like I would just be better at a more public facing role. And I've never really had any reason to regret that or think that wasn't the case. But what you're saying is probably also true. I mean, there are people who work in baseball for decades and never get a taste of what it's like to win and the stakes of the World Series. And I got a little taste of that. Again, I, I didn't really feel personally connected in a way because I had just been an intern. It wasn't like I helped put the team together or made any demonstrable difference in how the team did. So I didn't feel like it was a vindication of my performance or anything, but just that I had happened to be there at a moment that people work for years and years trying to get to. I did kind of felt feel like, well, okay, I, I did that. I can cross that off the list. I was there when a team won the World Series, and that probably did give me a, a little bit of freedom to say, well, what, what more can I see at this point? So if I'm being pulled in this other direction, then I can feel like that year was worthwhile, and now it's time to move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's certainly a, a, a great bucket list item right there. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Grantland, um, and when you looked at the bylines of, of all the different people who were writing at Grantland, I, I think that I certainly felt that way as a reader of it, but I also feel that way about The Ringer. I think I tweeted out like a couple of weeks ago, like I, was, I, had, I had logged on to The Ringer and I had seen the, the dizzying array of things that I really wanted to read and all yeah. the different names there, and I felt similarly to what you were describing about Grantland. How would you compare those two sites, the experience working at those two places and sort of the quality of people there, because I think the ringer's doing the best stuff in sports right now. Well, thank you. Yeah, for me, at least the experience of working there has been almost exactly the same, if not better in certain ways. I've been working with the same editor. Our editor in chief, Sean Fennessy, was an editor at Grantland too. So from day to day, I'm, I'm generally working with the same people I was working with. And I get a lot of leeway where it's just kind of like, well, what do you want to work about? What do you want to work on this week? What are you interested in? And then I do that. And increasingly, it's not about baseball sometimes. And they've been perfectly willing to let me indulge those interests too. So 
I wanted to go to the ringer because I felt like I knew what to expect having worked at Grantland and that has totally been the case. And yeah, I do get the same feeling when I look at the rest of the staff. There are so many people I respect and admire and so much stuff I want to read on the site every day. And I know that the ringer gets compared to Grantland a lot. I think that's inevitable just because of Bill Simmons and all the other editors and writers who've been involved with both sites. And at first, I, I think maybe that was an unfair comparison because people were comparing Grantland after, you know, four years of everyday operations to the ringer on day one. And I think if you look at Grantland from day one to year four, there was a, a huge growth and an improvement in the site. And so I think people tend to remember the best parts of Grantland and there were really great parts, but I think that the ringer is, is doing just as much good work and is doing more work really. And that's the thing we've kind of expanded what we cover. We now have a, uh, a tech vertical, which was not the case at Grantland. We cover national affairs a lot more than we did, which was difficult to do at ESPN and mm -hmm. also was just not in demand as much in 2014, 2015 as it is now. So it's almost as if we can cover anything at the ringer. I, I organized a space week uh, a few weeks ago. Just I, I like space. I'm an astronomy nerd. I pitched that as something that could bring together every aspect of the site and they were totally on board. And so we did a, a space week with a lot of science-y coverage and that wasn't really something that we had done before, but it was something we did very well, I think for one week. So between that, between the podcast network, which is great and huge and there's a podcast for everything, I do get that same feeling where I just feel lucky to work with these people every day. and at a site that just lets people do their thing. You know, I, I don't know what my traffic is at the ringer. I don't know, I didn't know what it was at Grantland's. I never really asked, no one ever told me, no one said you have to hit this number or that number. And it's really just more about what are you interested in? What can you write about well in a way that no one else is writing about it? And if we do that and we're all writing about things that we're interested in, then we'll end up with a, a really excellent site. And so. Between that, between the responsiveness, that's one of the big differences between The Ringer and Grantland is that at Grantland, we would basically just line up everything we were going to publish a day or, or however many days in advance and then wouldn't be really that responsive if something happened during the day. A whole day could go by before you'd get a response to that on Grantland, whereas now at The Ringer, we're trying to get much more quick, re quick reaction stuff up throughout the day. There are people who are sort of assigned to do that regularly and other people just chipping in. So it's a much more vibrant site during the day. There's just a lot more published. And yet, I think if you narrow it down and filter it to the long form stuff and the narrative storytelling and the feature writing, there's still just as much of that, too. So I am really happy and impressed with the site, just a little more than a year on. And I think it will only improve from here. I think probably nowhere was that freedom that you described uh, more apparent than this year's episode. Um, uh, take me out to the holodeck that you did on uh, the MLB or, uh, podcast um, yeah. for, for The Ringer. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe Michael Bauman was more, more excited even um, <laughs> about the, 
the uh, that particular episode, but you guys have inspired me to start watching Deep Space Nine on Netflix <laughs> uh, after yeah. that. But uh, is that sort of the ultimate expression? I mean, I, I can't I can't really imagine uh, anybody else on a baseball podcast uh, feeling like they had the freedom to go off in such tangential directions and uh, for it to actually work, and, and it really did. Yeah, so that was part of our Space Week package. I host two podcasts for The Ringer, The Ringer MLP Show, and then Achievement Oriented, which is our, our video games podcast. And so since I was organizing Space Week, I did Space Week-themed episodes of both of those podcasts. So on Achievement Oriented, we had someone from NASA on who was also a big gamer, and we talked about Destiny and Metroid and No Man's Sky and some space-themed games. And then on the Ringer MLB show, we talked to the former space, uh, showrunner of Deep Space Nine, Ira Stephen Bear, about Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, the baseball-themed Star Trek episode. And so we got a lot of good feedback from that. I think we're interested in the crossovers between baseball and pop culture. And there's probably some percentage of listeners who said, why am I listening to a Star Trek episode? We've got pennant races. We've got the playoffs coming up and all that. But we do two episodes a week, and so we feel like we have the freedom to kind of go off the beaten path from time to time and still talk about baseball. And, and that's one of the best things about baseball is that it's such a part of the fabric of American culture and history and language. And so this was, I think, one of the one of the examples of that that was closest to our hearts. So we were able to talk about how the heck do you get a baseball episode of Star Trek made and I think it worked out pretty well. So, yeah, between that and Effectively Wild, which I do three times a week now, I don't really want to do just a scoreboard baseball podcast that's here's who won and here's who lost. I mean, we mentioned that, of course. We talk about current events in baseball. But doing five baseball podcasts a week, I would go crazy if I were only talking about the action on the field. And there's just so much else to talk about, whether it's people in different countries who work in baseball or people in the indie leagues or at the amateur level or just strange experiences that crop up from now and then. We want to get into the weeds a little bit on that stuff. There are plenty of places to find recaps and straight up analysis of what's happening from day to day. So I'm always looking for ways to keep myself interested and hopefully keep the listeners interested with something that is not the most predictable podcast subject matter. One of the things you mentioned was um, you guys sort of have the ability now to cross into not only pop culture at The Ringer, but uh, to the political sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the first time that I've really heard you do that on the MLB show uh, was when you guys had on Jeff Passan. I believe that was just last week. Um, mm -hmm. and you were talking about some of the protests going on in MLB. Can you describe what that was like talking about politics on the podcast? And it's something that you don't typically hear in a baseball podcast, and you certainly have to tread carefully. Um, you know, do you guys consider that? Uh, what was that experience like, and, and, and how do you do it effectively, I guess? Yeah, that's tough. I think that's something that we've wrestled with at the site as a whole. How do we say something original? How do we say something that could appeal to any reader? You don't want to just come off necessarily as if it's just some sort of partisan screed or something. You, you want to have a point that resonates with your readers. And I think we've kind of adapted as we've gone on. I wrote some politics pieces last year 
when the election happened just because it felt like I, I don't know there there just wasn't as much interest in anything else at the moment i remember on election night i was supposed to be writing something about the walking dead and in the wake of this divisive election it just felt so frivolous for a day or two to write about anything else so i just did a, an election reaction and that's something that i hadn't had much experience doing before but my editors trusted me enough to to have something to say about it so when it comes to sports, I think there's a lot of sensitive sensitivity to it because, of course, sports is a refuge for a lot of people, and it's the one place where they feel like they don't have to think about national affairs and however things are going with the country and, and things that might be on their minds all the other points of the day. They can just get a relaxation and, and think about baseball, but it's obviously difficult to compartmentalize those things. I think they've never been in totally separate spheres, and now there's more crossover than ever. And there's still a level at which you can enjoy baseball, I think, without thinking about politics. But it's definitely true that they are inseparable in certain ways, whether it's just the national anthem being played before games, whether it's pay for minor leaguers, whether it's stadium funding and, and ballpark construction, there are just so many areas, you know, immigration and, and the fact that this is an international game. There are so many places where those topics touch that it's hard to avoid them entirely, which doesn't mean you can't still enjoy baseball on a level of wins and losses and pennant races and focus on politics and other areas of your life. So I, I don't blame anyone who wants to do that. But when you have a case like we had just recently, when Oakland A's catcher Bruce Maxwell kneeled, knelt during the national anthem and carried those protests over from football and basketball into baseball, at that point, you can't really ignore it. And it feels like just sort of putting your head in the sand not to talk about it. So Jeff Passan had talked to Maxwell and was writing an article about Maxwell. So we wanted to have him on to share his perspective. And, you know, we tried to blend that. We still talked about other baseball stuff. We didn't focus on only that one topic. So if that wasn't something that you wanted to listen to, there was plenty of other stuff for you to listen to. But it just felt like such a, a prominent story and a meaningful story that to ignore it entirely, I think, would have felt like we were failing our listeners in a way. So we uh, didn't get anyone sending us angry tweets about that. So I'm going to assume that we found the right balance there. Yeah, it seems like the days of uh, Twitter trolls yelling at everybody to just stick to sports are are, <laughs> are numbered for sure. It seems like yeah. uh, those two are intersecting at, at a rate that they have really never intersected before. And I think we're all going to be watching the NBA keenly when, when that season starts, especially with uh, – Adam Silver's comments that everybody must stand for the uh, anthem. It's that's mm. going to be a really fascinating thing to watch. Yeah. And I don't blame people who say, you know, you are a, a sports analyst. You're not a political analyst. So I don't care what your thoughts on politics are. That's a, a valid stance. I, there are certainly some writers I really respect who do stick to sports and that's fine. And that's what they think that people are reading them for or following them for. And there's really no problem with that. And so with other people who just feel moved to say something about more than that one narrow subject, well, you can choose to read them or follow them or not. But I've never really stuck to sports, not so much that I've been heavily into politics, but 
I'll just talk about or write about or tweet about whatever my interests are. And I hope that that gives people a more well-rounded view of who I am and what I like and how I think. And if you're there just for the baseball and you don't care about the other stuff, that is totally valid too. So I, I understand, you know, you, you don't really like to be around people necessarily in real life who are just opining and weighing in on every single subject and acting as if they're an authority on politics every time some story comes up. So I, I get why you wouldn't want that in baseball too. So I try not to be overbearing or preachy, but there are certain times when you just feel strongly enough about something that you have to talk about it. Um, I want to talk about the book that you wrote. Uh, you wrote a book with Sam Miller called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Um, and you both had an opportunity to run the Sonoma Stompers for, I believe it was just one season, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, 2015. Would you, would you tell us how that opportunity came up and what that experience was like? Uh, you know, because that's something that most of us only get to dream about. Yeah. So this happened when Sam and I were still at Baseball Prospectus and we were hosting Effectively Wild at BP then. And we interviewed Dan Evans, the former GM of the Dodgers, oh, a few years before the book happened. And he at the time was trying to revive an independent league called the Northern League. And he just casually mentioned during this interview that he was looking for people to take over teams, to operate teams. And Sam and I just sort of jokingly, but not really jokingly, said if you're just handing out baseball teams, we would take one. And at the time, we were thinking maybe it would be like a site-wide effort. Maybe a baseball prospectus could take over a team and run it together. And that didn't end up happening. Dan's independent league didn't end up getting off the ground. But once we had had that idea, it was just in the back of our heads for a while. And then on a later episode of Effectively Wild, Someone, I think a listener, emailed us to ask if we'd ever been to an independent league game, and we had to admit that neither of us had. And when we said that on the podcast, we were contacted by Tim Livingston, who worked for the Sonoma Stompers, and he invited Sam out to a game. Sam went out there. He wrote an article about it for Baseball Prospectus, and he got along well with the people there. They knew our work and, and respected us, and so we pitched them on the idea. They were totally into the idea of giving us the reins for their baseball team for a year on the baseball operations side, just partly for promotional purposes and partially because they just didn't have the resources to do anything when it came to the baseball side. It was really like the GM, Theo Fightmaster, was like counting the tickets after the game and grilling the hot dogs and everything. They just didn't have the, the labor force that a typical team does at higher levels. So they were happy to have us come in and bring some know-how and some technology and some time. So it worked out really well. We liked them, they liked us, and they gave us a shot. And so for the summer of 2015, Sam and I were out in Sonoma running this baseball team from day to day. So what is the first thing you do when you realize that you now are running a baseball team and you and Sam walked into the offices and looked around and said, all right, like, what are what are we doing here? Like, what is step one for running a baseball team? Yeah, that was scary. Yeah, we had a, about a day where we just allowed ourselves to be excited. Hey, we are doing this and we got a book deal and this is great. And then the day after that was just sheer terror. Like, how do we do this? We we don't know how to do this. We don't have any players. So 
ultimately we just tried to use the skills that we did have at that level of pro baseball, basically the lowest level of pro baseball. A lot of it comes down to being experienced in the game, knowing people. If you're a manager, you've probably coached or managed or played with some people before. And so when you have an opening on a team, you kind of have this network, this grapevine. You can put the word out and say, I need a shortstop or I know this shortstop. I used to play with this guy. I saw this guy play, that kind of thing. So it's very much that kind of personal connection. And Sam and I didn't have that at all. We didn't know any players who would play for this team. So we used stats, which is the one thing that we did know. So we kind of got an assist from the Sabermetric community. There was a, a guy named Chris Long who used to run the Padres stat department. He did draft analysis for them. So he helped us too. And we figured the best way that we could stock this roster was to go after recent college graduates who had not been drafted. So guys who had just finished their senior year of college had put up great stats, had shown that they had the ability to succeed at that level, but for whatever reason had been passed over by big league teams because they weren't big enough, they didn't throw hard enough, the, the typical kind of players with warts, money ball idea. And so we didn't know whether these guys would be legitimate prospects, but we didn't need them to be. We just needed them to be good enough to play at this low level of independent baseball. And so we essentially did some stat work. We adjusted for quality of competition and ballpark in college. And we ended up with this giant spreadsheet of all the college baseball players. And we filtered out the ones who had been drafted and were unavailable to us. And then we went for the guys with the best stats. And in some cases we tried to talk to them or their coaches a little bit, but really we assigned them sight unseen in many cases and said, Hey, come out to spring training. And they showed up and we just hoped that they would not be injured or out of shape or terrible people or anything like that. And that their performance would reflect how they had played in college. And so we had a lot of success with that strategy. Not everyone we signed worked out, but we were able to sign some of the best players on the team, some of the best players in the league and even a couple guys who then caught the attention of some major league teams and a couple guys ended up in affiliated ball, at least briefly with the Brewers and the Padres. And these were guys who were essentially retired and looking for their next job when we called them. So that was a really great feeling. So I want to dig into that process a little bit more. When, when you and Sam sat down and were talking to uh, Chris Long and in developing sort of an organizational philosophy for what style of players you were going to go after, what were you looking for? I mean, were you targeting, you know, OBP guys or, you know, with pitchers? Were you looking for ground ball guys? I mean, what kind of things did you um, kind of hash out as targets uh, for players you were going to acquire? Yeah, with pitchers, it was mostly just guys who could miss bats. I mean, it was the same way you would evaluate players at any level, just strikeout rate, walk rate, that kind of thing, obviously, these were college players. We didn't have StatCast or PitchFX or TrackMan or anything at that point on these guys. So we had to go with the basic stats and strikeout rate is something that becomes meaningful pretty quickly in fairly small samples. And college seasons are fairly small samples relative to major league seasons. So we went with that or, or yeah, with, with hitters, you know, just your typical get on base, hit for power. And we were able to adjust those stats so that you could compare, say, a, a Division One player to a Division Two or Three player and kind of tweak that accordingly so that they would all be on the same level. And guys who were in hitters' parks, guys who were in pitchers' parks, and 
then I, I think Chris came up with kind of a, a homebrew way of just comparing those stats and, you know, factoring in strikeout rate and walk rate in some sort of single index stat. But really, we had the most success, I think, just going after guys who could miss bats, which is typically the case at the major league level, too. And, you know, it's not like you should only use stats to sign players if you have the resources to scout them and see them in person and spend some time learning about them. We just didn't have that ability. We didn't have a a network of scouts at that point who we could send out to see these guys. So we were really just going into it pretty blind, but we figured that if a guy could succeed at a high level in college, it's not that huge a step to one of the lower levels of independent ball. And in most cases that turned out to be true. Not in every case. There was one player in particular who put up incredible college numbers in the NAIA and he was not drafted and we couldn't believe it because his numbers were just eye popping. And then he showed up with the stompers and he had this strange swing and it just it looked awkward and inelegant and our players who were on the team took one look at it and said oh that's like a metal bat swing that's not going to work here in a wood bat league and it was true at least initially and i would have liked to see a, a larger sample to see if he could have adjusted and proved himself and partly as it was that he'd been sitting at home for a couple months by the time we were able to come out there have him come out there but there is certainly something to that where obviously you want to combine the stat, stats and the scouting when you can. And that's something that we did in season. We set up a little scouting network with volunteers, people who listen to the podcast and were in the area and they would come out to the games with us and take video and hold up the radar gun and chart the games on a laptop with some software that we had so that we had a, a complete record of every pitch that was thrown and we could use that to analyze some of the the stats that we had and try to come up with strategies against players but when we were just putting the team together we had no way to do that so we relied on what we had which was not a lot but more than our competitors had so now you've had about two two plus years to reflect on this experience what would you say were the biggest successes failures and and takeaways from your time with the sonoma stompers Well, I think what we learned most of all as that summer went on was that it was more about how we presented ourselves and the diplomatic relations that we had or didn't have with the manager and coaches and the team. You know, we were hesitant at first to come in and order anyone around and make it seem as if we thought we knew everything about baseball because we didn't think that we had certain ideas of what we wanted to do, but It was always a debate between me and Sam. How do we present these ideas? How do we get people on our side? Do we come in and act like tyrants and tell them this is what we're doing? And whether you like it or not, we're running the team. So get in line. Or do we try to be more diplomatic and build a consensus and persuade people? And I think initially we did more of the latter just because we were very much out of our depths. And that was part of why we wanted to do this. We wanted to get out from behind the keyboards and the computers and try these ideas that we had in a real life environment with real professional baseball players. But of course we were apprehensive and nervous and we didn't know how best to go about this. And we weren't just signing players and then, you know, watching from afar. We were in the clubhouse every day showing players video. We were in the dugout during games and, you know, there were managerial moves in game moves that we wanted to make but we had a manager and so 
there was always just this negotiation. Do we pull the strings? Do we try to get people to see baseball the way that we do? How do we learn from these people? And I think we learned a lot about that as the season went on. We ended up making a change with our manager. We ended up uh, promoting one of our coaches who we worked with a lot better and who was, I think, more open-minded, a little less old school. And we kind of worked it out. A lot of it was our fault at the beginning. We didn't, you know, there were times when we probably should have put our foot down and said, this is what we're doing and kind of established that authority, asserted ourselves a little bit. But we felt a lot of pressure to get on people's good sides because we didn't want them to dislike us. We knew that we were going to be there all season. We wanted to be welcomed and feel like we were at home. And we also had a book to write. So we needed to talk to these guys and get their thoughts. And so it was helpful to be friendly with them, of course. And so I think as the season went on, we figured out some of our missteps, you know, like instead of questioning the manager's moves during the game or telling him what to do during the game, we would instead have a meeting after the game and out of the sight of the team, we would go over what we had liked or didn't like, or we would meet before the game started. So he was able to retain more authority and, and it didn't look like he was being undermined by us during games, for example, or when we would, you know, provide these scouting reports for players at the beginning of the season, we would just dump everything we knew onto a whiteboard in the dugout and it would just be scrawled full of text from one corner to the other, what this guy throws in this count and that count and how hard he throws and where he throws and here's his pickoff move and here's how fast he is to the plate. And it was just information overload and the players kind of pulled us aside and said, hey, this is all great information. We're happy to have it, but this is just too much for us to remember when we're going up to the plate. We can't keep this entire whiteboard in our heads. You need to boil it down, distill it into something we can actually use. And so then we would simplify it and we would just reduce it to the most important things. So we learned a lot, a lot about that. It, it was, I think, less learning about baseball or stats, which is what we had envisioned coming into the project than it was just learning about interpersonal stuff and how players are receptive or aren't receptive to this message and how we could tailor it accordingly. Um, do you still talk to any of the people that you worked with here at uh, Sonoma? Yeah, uh, of course I'm in touch with Sam all the time, but we also talked to Tim Livingston, the guy I mentioned who was instrumental in bringing us out there. Theo Fightmaster, the GM of the Stompers, just became a good friend of ours, so we're still in touch with him. A couple of the players who were you know, closer to us, maybe more aligned with us philosophically or more interested in what we were doing, we're still in touch with them. So there are probably some guys we'll never see again after the, the last pitch of that season, but definitely some lifelong relationships were formed. That's really cool. So I guess it's time to get to the AL uh, preview, uh, AL playoff preview, because the Red Sox have finally clinched after 161 games. It <laughs> felt like every single one of those games, and I'm sure yeah. even more to uh, Brian, because Brian uh, did the lineups every single day for Over the Monsters, so uh -huh. uh, this has been an absolute grind for him. Um, I guess a, a couple questions for you, um, as someone who's not you know, covering the Red Sox every day. Were you surprised it took this long for them to clinch the AL East, and were they actually a better team than the Yankees? Um, over the course of the year, even though the run differential doesn't say that they were? Right. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised that the Red Sox weren't 
better than they were. I had expected them to be competing with the Indians, with the Astros as one of the best teams in the league, and they didn't really end up quite in that class. So that surprised me a bit as to whether they were better. I mean, you know, look, ultimately all that matters is that they did win the division and those wins and losses counts and they, they count. And I know that people get frustrated sometimes when stat heads come in and say that, you know, what actually happened wasn't what should have happened or what would have happened in most cases. But I do have to, to say I'm I'm more or less of that belief that if you look at the underlying performance, the Yankees were a, a stronger team, certainly over the course of the regular season. You know, just looking at whatever you want to look at, run differential, base runs, you know, third order record, Pythagorean record, any of these sort of expected records that look at how did this team hit and how did this team pitch and how many runs did they score or allow Yankees do a lot better in those respects than the Red Sox do. That's just unavoidable. I think the Yankees maybe had the, what, second best run differential in the league and the Red Sox were down at ninth best, something like that. So I do think there's something to that. I think if you look at the base runs record at Fangrass that attempts to just look at the team's underlying performance and say, this is the sort of record that that performance would be expected to produce. The Yankees underperformed their base runs record by like 10 wins, which was the biggest underperformance in baseball. And I think the Red Sox maybe overperformed theirs by six wins or something the last time I looked. So I think that probably there, there was some fortunate timing or luck or clutchness or whatever you want to call it, sequencing that helped the Red Sox. And if you could replay this season a thousand times, I think probably the Yankees end up winning the division more often than the Red Sox do. But in our reality, that is not what happened. And so the Red Sox get to go on to the ALDS, whereas the Yankees have to play in the coin flip game. So I do think the Yankees are formidable. And if it ends up in a head-to-head matchup at some point, I'd probably favor them. But they didn't win the division, and now they have to suffer the consequences. Um Throughout the course of the year, I think one of the things that really helped the Red Sox was their favorable schedule. They had a really tough first half of the year schedule where they played a lot of road games. They had some long road trips. Um, And then the second half of the year, the schedule really lightened up. They played a lot of teams that were under 500. They had a lot more home games. They had more time off. And I thought that the Red Sox offense and pitching was generally more effective in the first half. So I think that that really did help them quite a bit this year. Mm. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that you're probably more aware of than I am as someone who is following and covering the Red Sox on a a daily basis, whereas I'm, you know, checking in on them here and there. So on that level, probably a a local writer is, is more attuned to that than I would be. I do think, you know, they they surprised me in certain ways. I did not expect this to be a team with a relatively weak offense compared to the rest of the playoff field. I didn't think this was going to be a team that did not hit many home runs. I mean, I think we knew that losing David Ortiz was going to hurt, but I still expected this to be a good lineup and they really were kind of dwarfed in that area by the Astros at least. So they didn't win quite the way I would have expected them to win, but 
they got there and that's what matters you just have to get into the playoffs we say this every single year but if you can get there then of course any team can get hot for a few weeks and win a, a few small sample series and Red Sox are certainly capable of that no matter what we know about them based on the last six months yeah I feel like that's a point that Brian keeps bringing up to us and and Brian maybe you can speak to this a little bit more but um you you kind of keep saying that you know they've gotten there they have a chance why do they have as good a chance as some of these teams that have much better run differentials Brian well, after, excuse me, after watching them play the Astros this week, I'm not sure that I would say that anymore. Um, because just to win the one game they needed to win to close out the vision was a labor. Um, and that was after they got smoked, or they didn't get smoked two other times. I think the one corrective to the way you're approaching this, Jake, and it's it doesn't mean anything about your being right or wrong about the Yankees, I don't think it's as important the Red Sox, like, are they better or worse than the Yankees? I just think the Yankees are clearly much better um, than, you know, most teams. And that the Red Sox beat them in the division is a good sign, not an ominous one, because the Yankees are, you know, even if they underperform, they're still very good. But especially it, uh, with the way this Red Sox team is built and what they've done specifically uh, in <laughs> extra inning games, the insane record they have. Uh, if there's such a thing as playoff style baseball, you could argue that they play it. And the David Price wrinkle is really great because uh, I think it's just it's it's something that's uncommon, and he's. More to the point, he's just very good. So bringing someone of that uh, talent level in late in the game is uh, obvious, or any point in the game, is obviously very effective. But I wouldn't say after watching them play the Astros that I'm as confident uh, as I have been all year, because when I talk about it all year, I mean, in theory, if you get in, and it's still in practice, because we've seen teams limp to the finish line and then win or teams win up to the finish line and lose. And we've also seen vice versa, but it's a strange thing for them to play the Astros four times in a row and then play them maybe five times in a row. Um, and it's pretty crazy. And the Astros just, if we can, if we can narrow it down to how might they play in a series right now, it looks like they might play pretty well. So I'm not as confident as I have been. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you both about is if either of you were aware before, oh, let's just say the last month, that the Red Sox had never won back-to-back -back division championships. Huh, no, it's news to me. I wasn't, but it didn't surprise me as much just because as I think Red Sox history is littered with these spikes of teams i mean the 70s were a little bit different but there's you know there's a spike in the late 40s i guess there's a spike in the 70s and there's a spike in 67 um but other than that they weren't uh, sustainably good so it didn't surprise me it's just uh it's funny <laughs> but now but now they've done it 
Yeah, I was shocked when I when I read that. And I know that the Red Sox had had some lean times, and I looked back at, at Baseball Reference yesterday, and I tweeted out that from 1919 to 1985, they made the postseason just three times. Um, and then from 1986 to the present day, they've now made it 15 times. Um, so it's, it's a particularly good time to be a Red Sox fan, but I, I'm just uh, – I, I think it was one of those stats that when I heard it, I really thought that that was – an incorrect statement. I, I, I thought that has to be an error. Um, yeah. So so let's let's talk about that matchup with the Astros. The Astros are a very good team and a team that I think the first article I remember reading about the Astros uh, looking like they're going to be a really good team for 2017 was when Fangraphs uh, published an article about um, how good that lineup was going to be after they made the additions that they did. Um, and they sort of talked about the length of that lineup, and, and lo and behold, that did end up being very true for most of the year. Uh, the lineup was fantastic. Uh, they won over 100 games. Um, ben, I'll ask you first, what are you going to be focusing on for this matchup? What are the key um, areas that, you know, if it goes one way for the Red Sox, uh, they will win the series. If it goes another for the Astros, they'll win the series. What are going to be the main battles that you're looking at? Well, I think there's only so much that's actually different about playoff baseball than regular season baseball at this time of year. We always want to analyze in minute detail why teams could win, why they can't. And really, this is still baseball and the strengths and weaknesses that they had during the regular season, they'll tend to have in the playoffs too. And, you know, every team in baseball, no matter how good, has lost a bunch of games in a row at some point in the season and bad teams have won a bunch of games at some point in a row. So, you know, it just one of those streaks coincides with a three or five game series or a seven game series. And, and that's that. So there's only so much analysis you can do. But I would say that, you know, as you mentioned, the Astros offense is historically great. I think if you go to Fangrass and you sort all offenses all time by weighted runs created plus, which is just a kind of an all-in-one park adjusted, league adjusted, era adjusted number that uh, compares teams on kind of an even footing. The only teams with offenses better than the Yankees are uh, better than the Astros, sorry, are literally like the Yankees murderers road teams, 27, 30 and 31 Yankees are all slightly above the Astros. And then it's the Astros. So this is one of the best offenses ever. And the edge that I suppose the Red Sox have is that bullpen. And when you do look at what gives a team an edge in October, it's the bullpen. It's maybe being able to consolidate their innings in the hands of their very best pitchers, because of course we know there are more off days in the postseason. You can bring back relievers more often. You can skip your worst starters. So if your weakness is say the back of your rotation, that kind of thing, you can kind of paper over that a bit by just riding your top starters harder and by bringing in relievers earlier. And so as Brian mentioned, now there's David Price who looks like a real weapon this month and then of course there's Kimbrell and there's Reed and there's Kelly and there's Carson Smith and Joe Kelly you know workmen or whoever makes the playoff roster they're just a, a long line of effective and in some cases outright unhittable relievers on this roster and so that's kind of the game plan for the Red Sox I would think is you start Chris Sale as often as you can and then when anyone else is pitching and 
I don't know if they've announced or, or when they'll decide who exactly will be in the playoff rotation, but whether they pick Purcell or Rodriguez or Fister, of course, Pomeranz will be in there. Just, you know, give the most innings you can to your best pitchers. So start sale often and bring in Kimbrell and Reed and Price and Kelly and all of these guys early and often and aggressively. And I don't know, you guys would probably have a better sense than I would of whether Farrell can kind of flip that switch and go into postseason mode and use his relievers a little differently than he would during the regular season. But that's the way that you get past the Astros, I suppose. You know, they're they're tough now. Of course, Verlander strengthened one of their weaknesses, which was the starting rotation. Their bullpen is fine, but not dominant. They have very good relievers in there, but I would say on the whole, the Red Sox have the edge there. So it's really going to just come down to being able to bring those relievers in, try to shut down that Astros offense long enough to get by them. And I would favor the Astros here, but I can't emphasize enough how unsurprising any outcome of a playoff series is, whether it's the best team versus the worst team in the playoff field. It just doesn't matter. These are all good teams and these are all small samples and really an upset is hardly even worth remarking over because you're just going to expect some upsets to happen. It's just the nature of the beast. So, Brian, what kinds of things are you going to be looking for? And if the Red Sox win, what will be the biggest reason? I mean, I think if the Red Sox win, the biggest reason will be that they did even just a moderate amount of hitting because when they do that, they win. Uh, And they may have to do quite a bit more to beat the Astros, but it's possible that if the pitching is good enough, they can just hit a decent amount and and win. I mean, I'm totally with what Ben said. This is sort of what I've been saying all year. I think that when we see some a, a team like last year's Cubs go start to finish, it makes it, and then face the, the Indians, it, it makes it, seem like it's easy or right that that should happen right it does happen a certain amount of the time but this is what i say all year and frankly why in our preseason predictions i always pick the red sox to win the world series because like well why why not i'm gonna predict the dalds this many months ahead of time like it my pick now is no really no more or less informed than it was then uh that's sort of based on the red that's a whole different story because the red sox ended up exactly where they were supposed to for reasons that were not even related to the ones that were supposed to end up there but yeah if they can hit they just gotta hit so yeah and, and i would of, say yeah sorry to cut you off no, but you know there's there's this perception i think that in the playoffs you can't just rely on hitting the home run And if that were the case, I guess that would favor the Red Sox because the Red Sox did not hit home runs. There's a a leaderboard at Baseball Prospectus. It's called the Guillen number. It's something that was coined by Joe Sheehan. You can find it on the stats page there. It's just what percentage of runs were scored on home runs. And of course, league wide, a lot more than ever before this season. But there's a wide range between the playoff teams and the Red Sox Guillen number is the second lowest in all of baseball this year. Only 33.9% of their runs were scored on the home run. And there's this idea that right in the playoffs, you have to like make things happen. You have to 
you know, try to manufacture runs because it's a lower scoring environment. I tend to think that's actually the opposite of the case. I think the more home runs you hit or the more reliant on home runs you are, the better. Because in the playoffs, you're facing the best pitching. You're facing the best defenses generally. It's harder to string together base hits. If your whole offensive game plan is we're going to put together three singles in a row, that's tough to do in the playoffs because you're facing aces, you're facing unhittable bullpens, you're facing good defensive teams. So in my mind, it's actually better to be a more home run oriented offense. And so that's not good news for the Red Sox. If I'm right about that, you'd rather be, say, the Yankees, who are, I think, the most home run reliant team in the playoffs this year. So in my mind, that is another strike against the Red Sox. But again, we're just talking about marginal advantages or disadvantages here over the course of one division series. This could come into play. It could completely not come into play. It wouldn't be at all surprising if the Red Sox outhomered the Astros over three or four games. So this is something that, uh, you know, maybe is not a positive sign for them. But as Brian's saying, it's, it's totally possible that they could string together a bunch of good games on offense. And that's all it would take. That would be a fantastic if they just came out and started hitting the absolute shit out of the ball. Um, I uh, just just to screw with us, but I um, I tend to, I agree with Ben obviously, and I think that I wonder if people just in they come to these conclusions about what you need to win a playoff game because that I would say that playoff games with that sort of uh, that that are more small ball based are just probably more exciting to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas they'll, just, you'll, they'll turn off a game that's 10 to nothing and not count, you know, not think too much about how uh, the game got there. And yeah. it just it becomes easy to hold on to it because the only games that they're actually paying attention to. But right. And I, I think an all or nothing offense can be frustrating and can be nerve wracking. If you're in the playoffs, you know, you don't want to see someone just striking out over and over again, you're on the edge of your seat, you're white knuckling this whole thing. You want to see someone who is putting the ball in play, making things happen, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're the offense that's reliant on home runs and the home runs aren't coming, it's a very frustrating feeling. And that tension is amplified a hundredfold when you're in the playoffs. And so I think it can be even more agonizing if you're just waiting for the home run and the home run's not coming. But I think in the long run, you're still better off with that type of offense. Yeah, it, it does seem that way. Um, I, I think that probably the, the Royals and the uh, the Giants would, would have something to say about that over the last few years. But anecdotally, it does make a lot more sense that with, with better pitching and defense, it would be a lot tougher to string together runs that way it does seem strange though that baseball seemed to look to that um, model of success that the Giants and Royals modeled um, as a as a new solution on how to get there over the last couple mm-hmm. of years it certainly seemed like they were looking that way anyway yeah I think I, they just want yeah. it to be true man <laughs> yes I think that's that's kind of the case too I mean those Royals were really fun yeah. that was a, a very entertaining brand of baseball and so I think people wanted to believe that there was some sort of playoff magic to that type of contact hitting team i remember writing something for grantland about that and i found that there might actually be a slight edge 
for contact hitters against like harder velocities that you tend to see in the playoffs. And so, you know, relative to the typical hitter, all else being equal, maybe you would take the contact hitter over the non-contact hitter. But the problem is that generally all else is not equal and that the non-contact hitter often tends to be so much better than the contact hitter that that just overcomes any slight advantage that the contact hitter has because the guy who's prone to strikeouts is probably also walking a lot and hitting for power a lot and those are valuable skills well one of the things that i'm going to be uh really watching closely in this series is the performance of chris sale and i think throughout the playoffs because you know i'm really excited about this we finally get to see playoff chris sale uh, yeah that, that's going to be a really exciting thing but uh the uh, great writer alex spear uh just recently wrote an article about familiarity in chris sale and, and the trouble that he's had with uh batters that get familiar with him and particularly the Cleveland Indians have given him a whole lot of trouble because a lot of those players have seen him, you know, 30 or more times uh, throughout their careers. Um, whereas the Astros have not had a lot of success with him because they barely ever see him. Um, I'm really happy that Chris Sale was held out today and that he's going to be going against them uh, for the first time maybe all year. I'm not sure if he's faced them this year. Um, but have either of you paid attention to that uh sort of issue that chris sale has with with familiarity it seems like the more that guys see him the the better chance they have of of hitting him and it gets exponentially so with every more uh 10 or more at bats that they have well um, i did see it maybe i did see it maybe lose him the cy young award over the last month um but that remains to be seen but it's 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 clearly a thing, but I also think, it, I mean, we'll see if the Red Sox can make it to the Indians, uh, if that'll rear its head there. But if it's true, uh, I don't even know how much it would affect uh, the tomorrow or whenever's game on a, you know, he could still just have a great game. He's Chris Sale. So we'll yeah. see. I hope right. you're right. I hope you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know how much to make of that. I don't know that there's anything about him that you would say this is why that would be the case. It's not as if he is like one of these guys who's heavily reliant on one pitch. He's pretty good at mixing things up. I, I guess it could be he has a, a weird delivery, of course, and maybe that is jarring the first time you see it, the first few times you see it, and then maybe you get used to it uh, as you see it more. So that's possible. I I don't know. There's been a lot of research, obviously, about how pitchers suffer each time through the order within a single game. There is less research into the familiarity effect over multiple games or seasons. I've seen some research to the effect that there could be something there that a hitter gains the advantage every time he sees a pitcher, even if it's over the course of months or years. But, you know, I, I don't know how big a sample size you need to say that that is definitely true of one pitcher. It could be true by a fluke. It, I, I don't know. So I would say that maybe there's something to it. And, and I also would have probably held him out of that last start just to avoid having him start against the same team twice within a week. But also, you know, Chris Sale is, is a, a huge weapon and 
probably the last thing you want to worry about if you're a Red Sox fan. There's plenty of other aspects of the roster to worry about, and you just have to hope that he will be his usual fantastic self because that alone, having one guy like that who is, if not the best pitcher in the league, maybe the second best if he is firing on all cylinders. I mean, that right there, we've seen that if it's someone like Bumgarner, for instance, I mean, if you get one ace who is pitching at the top of his game for that month and pitches on short rest and comes in on relief, I mean, that can be just a, a dominant, dominant asset to a team. Yeah, we saw Corey Kluber do a very similar thing and almost yeah. get them there last year. So you're absolutely right. It's it is probably the biggest weapon in the postseason. Maybe you could argue that a fireman like Andrew Miller uh, is just as big a weapon, but um, you know it's it's something that the Red Sox are really lucky to have um, this time around. But it is it is notable that Chris Sale is since he's not going to get that start, uh, he is going to miss his opportunity to surpass Pedro Martinez's strikeout record of 313. So he will mm. uh, end the season with a very respectable 308 strikeouts <laughs> uh, on the year. Certainly uh, not something we can complain about. So. Um, before we wrap up uh, talking about them, would either of you guys care to make a prediction on the Houston uh, Red Sox series? Well, um, I only, yeah. I mean, as I said, I only pick the Red Sox to win the World Series until they're out of it. So I'm going to pick the Red Sox. <laughs> well, my predictions are always very boring. I try to avoid doing them whenever I can. And when someone makes me do them. I think they let everyone down because I always <laughs> just go with like the obvious pick that probability would support. And rarely do I make kind of like the bold attention getting here's why this underdog is going to win kind of pick. So I'm going to go with the team that I think is the better baseball team, which is the Astros. And again, I can't say it enough. Just whatever I predict in the playoffs has such a low confidence attached to it because I really do believe that this stuff could so easily go either way. I mean, if it ends up being a, a Dodgers-Twins World Series, that, that wouldn't surprise me. If, if the Twins end up sweeping the Dodgers in the World Series, that would mildly surprise me, but I wouldn't— I was going to say, that <laughs> might be pushing it. That, it. Yeah, a little bit, but even so, I mean, I'm sure, you know, look, we saw the Dodgers lose— what, four in a row to the Padres like a month ago or less. So that was shocking. Yeah, I mean, it happens. Yeah. So uh, anything can happen, but generally I'm going to go with the team that has revealed itself to be the best over the six months that we've just seen. And unless there's some kind of like massive advantage that one team derives from the postseason schedule that another doesn't, and maybe that favors the Red Sox a little more than the Astros, but not enough to overcome, I think, just the higher quality of the Astros roster. Well, I think that those are both fair predictions. I will give my own here. I think the Red Sox will win this one in five games uh, simply because they're not familiar with Sale, and I'm buying into that whole thing right now. Uh, Here's the difference in your prediction and mine is that you believe yours. <laughs> I'm just saying mine. <laughs> Uh, very true, very true. So we are getting a little long here, but I, w I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on, uh, at least very briefly, uh, the rest of the American League. So I'm going to give you guys um, just about 30 seconds each to um, say if this Yankees-Twins 
uh, game even really matters like can anybody beat the indians here um and you know based on what ben has been telling me maybe maybe anybody can beat the indians <laughs> uh, yep. but you know are, are they still clearly the best team in the american league and in baseball uh i guess let's start with ben what's what's your reaction uh to this twins yankees miniseries and and then the indians yeah, I mean, I think the Yankees are really good, and I think that for the reasons we've mentioned, they're also a good playoff team. They have an incredible bullpen. They have a home run-oriented offense. They have maybe a, a weaker back of the rotation that won't be holding them back in the playoffs. So I think they are a well-constructed playoff team. And, you know, again, the Twins could easily beat them in a single game. I'll be at that wild card game. I'm looking forward to it. I would expect the Yankees to win, but we're talking, I don't know, 60-40, 65-35, 70-30, maybe something like that. But assuming they get past that, I just don't think there's any reason to say that any team other than the Indians is the best team in this field, on the American League side at least. And I think they've had possibly the best pitching staff ever, both in their rotation and in their bullpen. If you look at the numbers, they support that idea that this Indians team was better than even like the mid nineties Braves teams. And I just, I don't know why you would pick any other team, which is not to say that another team couldn't win very easily, but we've seen this roster. The staff is incredibly deep. We saw last year that Terry Francona is willing to manage differently in the playoffs. That was partly out of necessity last year because they were shorthanded, but I think he's also just willing to do that now, having shown that it worked last year. So I would pick the Indians to get back where they were last year. Brian? Uh, well, I would definitely say, I would definitely think the Yankees are a scary team. So I would say that this more than most years, I would you know, all risk all love to the twins uh, who, as Ben said, could win the World Series, but they—I think it might matter more this year. In, in, in as much probability uh, as as much as it could matter this year, it might. Uh, in that sense, so can anyone beat the Indians? Well, I have told you that the Red Sox are going to win the World Series, so yes, the Red Sox can. <laughs> okay. But but seriously, the Red Sox played the Indians really well this year. Um, they did so. Yeah, they they certainly made it respectable. Um, I think that uh, any of us would have been considered a crazy person if in August we said that there was going to be any team um, that we're talking about as being a better baseball team than the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, Then they had that terrible month, and, and now we're talking about them as, you know, potentially the Dodgers of old where maybe they get bounced in the first round. Uh, who is going to be representing the National League in the World Series this year? Uh, I'll go to Brian first, and then we'll close it out with Ben. Well, I, my prediction before the year was Red Sox-Cubs, so I'm going to stick with that. That's, I, that's Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a really strong field. I, there's not as much of a difference probably between the best and worst NL teams as there is the best and worst AL teams, because even the Diamondbacks, the NL wildcard team, I think they're pretty good. I, you know, maybe the Rockies are in a lower class, uh, but I think probably I'm sticking with the Dodgers. I think the Nationals are really right there. Obviously, the Cubs have played about as well as anyone in the second half, which was not that shocking. And 
I just think that, you know, despite the fact that the Dodgers didn't quite get up to the heights that it looked like they might reach before they had that swoon for a couple of weeks, I think they are still probably the best team in the league. And they also have a, a good and deep bullpen. They also have a pretty strong top of the rotation. I know there are questions about Wood and Darvish and some of the guys who were really good for them in the first half, but you know, I'm not a believer at all in the idea that there's some kind of playoff problem with Clayton Kershaw. I think the problem has generally been with their bullpen more than Kershaw himself. And I think they've taken some steps to address that. So I would still go with the Dodgers, but really Nationals and Cubs are just a half step down. Did Kershaw end up extending his streak? I know that you were looking at he did, that yes. closely. Okay. Yes, his his nine consecutive years now of lowering his career ERA, he he did manage to extend that. The most impressive streak in baseball, especially considering yeah. how low his ERA uh, yes. has been over the past eight years. Uh, yep. That is uh, truly an incredible stat. So, yeah, I think I'm going to go with Nationals versus uh, Cleveland, and I am taking the Indians to win it all. But uh, I just can't wait for these playoffs. They're going to be incredible matchups all mm-hmm. around, and uh, it's it's going to be an awesome postseason. And if it's anything close to as good as last year, we will all be very lucky. So, um, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been an incredible podcast. Brian, thank you. Uh, we'll do a little bit of housekeeping right now. If you liked the show, you can go on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, any of those services and subscribe to us. You can also rate and review us there. Uh, if you liked listening to this podcast and particularly you liked Ben, Brian, or myself, you can follow us on Twitter at Ben Lindbergh for Ben. You can follow Brian at, at Brian Joyner and you can follow me at, at Dev Jake. Um, and please rate and review us. That's how we get more people's ears. Uh, so. Uh, please do that. Um, Ben, thanks again. This was fantastic. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, the playoffs and and enjoying everything that you write and have to say about it throughout the process. Well, thank you. This was fun. Thanks, guys.